We have a wonderful, wonderful opportunity here, and we have not only a standing room only crowd, but a overflow crowd. So I want to, in a few minutes, there will be people in the Edgar Allan Poe room on the second floor, and it's a live feed, so shout out to the people in the Poe room. I'm Carla Hayden, Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome. We are delighted that you are here for another edition of our Talking About Race lecture series. And this wouldn't have been possible without a partnership and partners that have been truly wonderful. The Open Society Institute, Baltimore. Please give them a hand. We kicked off this series in 2009, and it has been very, very successful. It also definitely shows the importance and the eagerness of people in this area to discuss and tackle issues connected to race. It's opened up a dialogue in the city, and we're hoping it will continue beyond tonight and beyond the library. Tonight, we're very honored to have special guests, and in fact, so special, I have to share something with you. There's a woman in the audience, oh, it's okay. It's a woman in the audience who heard uh, our guest tonight speaking about skydiving and today, and she's here today, and she came specifically because she heard you because she did that for a very milestone birthday. Ma'am, could you raise your hand? So she's skydiving today. So, so it's not just about race. <laughs> now, as you know, our guest tonight is just uh, wonderful. He's a cultural critic for MSNBC, the host of several shows on Fuse TV, contributing editor at Rolling Stone magazine, and you're going to hear more. Uh, about him and also another person who will be joining us shortly and a special guest. And I wouldn't uh, be the head of the Enoch Pratt Free Library if I didn't use this opportunity to do a commercial. <laughs> On February 4th, 2012, Michael Eric Dyson will be here and be in Baltimore for the annual Book Lovers Breakfast at the library halls. And we hope that you will be able to join us for that, and we're looking forward to it. As I mentioned earlier, tonight's event would not have been possible without the Open Society Institute of Baltimore. Many of you know about their programs and what they've done for this city. They came to this city to invest, but also to work with everyone in the city. And so we're very pleased to have the person who's responsible for that um, to introduce our guest tonight, the director of Open Society Institute, Baltimore, Ms. Diana Morris. Well, thanks, Carla. I think we all have to agree that the Pratt Library, especially under Carla's leadership, is an incredibly special place, a very welcoming place. So thank you. And we couldn't think of a better group to partner with with this series. And I want to also share in Carla's welcome to all of you. It is just fantastic to see this many people here and in the other room uh, and interested in this discussion. 
what's really amazing is that this talking about race series that we've been doing with the Enoch Pratt Library actually was only supposed to be a year-long program. So we're now in year three, and it's all because of you and your interest. And as always, we're very interested in whom you would like to hear from, so let us know. And if there's other kinds of follow-up activities you, you think that this kind of series should generate, different kinds of discussion groups, let us know about that too. We'd love to work with the Pratt to make that happen. Uh, before we begin the program, I want to thank some of the people that made this possible. We have a wonderful board member, Robin Woods, and her husband that have helped us, and also Vernon Reed. Uh, and they have made really important and ongoing support to make this series possible. So thank you very, very much. Now, over the course of three years, we've addressed a number of questions that are closely related to what we actually do at the Open Society Institute here in Baltimore. Our work focuses on three of the biggest challenges facing the city, and I know they'll be very familiar to all of you. We're focused on education, drug addiction treatment, uh, and curtailing the overuse of incarceration. And our hope is that if we target our resources right, work well with the community and the public agencies here, we can change what has been a very negative dynamic into a positive one. And I think all of us here see a lot of indications of success. The issue of race is one that we touch upon in every aspect of the work that we do. We're very concerned with increasing opportunity and justice, especially for those in the community who live in poverty and have historically or currently experienced uh, discrimination. Uh, so tonight we will specifically address the question and the issue of black identity and what it means to be black today. Are we living in a post-racial society? a post-blackness society, what do those terms mean? Uh, Tory writing in his newest book, Who's Afraid of, Black, of Post-Blackness Now, has taken this question and struggled with what it means to him. And along the way, he's interviewed many other black, well-known thinkers who have also tried to answer this question. He discusses the issues of being black and being an American, what's changed over the years, and what's remained the same. I think tonight's discussion, uh, moderating discussion, which will also be with Michael Eric Tyson, who wrote the foreword to the book, Dyson, sorry, Michael Dyson, who wrote the foreword to the book, will be both provocative and stimulating. Now, just a few notes before we get into the discussion. Um, after the moderated discussion, we will take questions from all of you. Uh, you can just come up to the microphone, and, um, and there's one in each aisle, at least I see one here. Um, and, you can, and you can ask a brief question. I also want to encourage you to visit our blog. It's audaciousideas.org, and that's a place where you can sign up so you can be sure to be uh, invited to events like this. Also, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, the hashtag for tonight's event is Race Talk. And now I'd like to introduce the, tonight's speakers. Uh, Torre, as Carla noted, is the author of Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, What It Means to Be Black Now. He's a cultural cr critic for MSNBC, as well as the host of Hip Hop Shop and On the Record, which appears on Fuse TV. He's been a contributing e ed editor at Rolling Stone, and his articles appear regularly in publications ranging from the New York Times to the Village Voice and to the New Yorker. 
Michael Eric Dyson, who perhaps needs no introduction and will be joining us from Georgetown where he's coming in. Whoops, hey. just down the moment. Among other things, he obviously has excellent timing. Um, he has the Michael Eric Dyson uh, show, which airs locally on WEAA, and he's the author of 17 books. And he was named by Ebony as one of the most hundred, one of the hundred most influential uh, Black Americans. We're very lucky to have Don, Dr. Tanya Sharp. She will serve as tonight's moderator. She's an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. She has extensive training and interdisciplinary practice and research experience related to public health, diversity, and violence. Dr. Sharp's specialty area practice and research includes working with African-American families who are surviving the homicide of a loved one. So thank you very much for being here with us. use cards, then you'll get to Oprah money. <laughs> so let's start off a little bit. Um, first of all, on a personal note, I just want to tell you, give me back my cards. I cannot believe you just did that. Did you see that? <laughs> okay. You don't no need pressure. Them. You um, don't need them. So I really was touched by reading your book, both on a personal and professional level. And um, I have to say, um, I think that your marketing strategy was pretty uh, good in terms of the whole idea of post-blackness because individuals that I talked to who haven't read the book certainly start off with, what is this joker thinking? What is this joker thinking? Racism isn't over? What's going on? So I want to know basically how you would speak to someone who might say something just like that to you. Well, I'd say, what first of all, you should read the book. Read the book. Right? Yeah, that would be a good start. You've got to deal with the actual ideas in the sure. book and not the sort of idea that you think. I mean, and I understand it, it was not a marketing strategy. It was all a sort of creative strategy. I mean, I just, I knew of Thelma Golden and Glenn Ligon's term, post-black. Thelma Golden is a legendary curator of the Studio Museum of Harlem. Glenn Ligon is an amazing visual artist. They are best friends. And they came up with this term, post-black, in the late 90s to talk about artists they saw who wanted to be rooted in but not constrained by blackness, who wanted to be artists first and not black artists first. Right? Artists who happen to be black can paint or sculpt or make performance art about anything. They are not constrained to the burden of representation and you know, so they so they saw these artists who wanted to be liberated in that way. They don't want to lose or leave or erase blackness. They love blackness and very much want to be part of that, and so do I. But I also want the freedom to do other things. And so that, that goes directly to the skydiving story that we referenced. Uh, I was uh, tasked with skydiving for this show I was doing called I'll Try Anything Once, where they asked me to do crazy things that you would never do on your own. 
And um, you know, as I'm on my way to the skydiving center with the four people, with my mentor, who of course was white, and three other people who were white who worked on the show, um, these black men came to me and said, oh, well, what are you doing here in the middle of nowhere, Florida? And um, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm going skydiving. And they said, black people don't do that. <laughs> and then they looked at the four people I was with who are all white, and if that clinched, well, there you go. You're going skydiving with a group of white people. Clearly, you did not get the memo, black people don't do that. Um, you know, which is a bit strange because occasionally black people do do that. There was a legendary uh, paratrooper group in World War II that jumped over 1,400 times, a legendary in army circles, all black unit, the 555th. So they were black and skydived. And I mean, the other thing is that, you know, yes, when you get to the skydiving center, the vast majority of people are white. There was only one other black person that day at the whole, at the skydiving center the whole day. But the vast majority of white people are like, hell no, I'm not going skydiving. So it's not like all black people are like, no, and all white people are like, sure, why not? I'll jump out of a plane. No big deal. So the vast majority of human beings are anti-skydiving. It just happens that the group of people, the small group of people who will do it, most of them are white. Um, so, you know, but I did it and I jumped out of the plane and at 4,000 feet when the parachute opened and I'm floating down like a snowflake, the view of the world from 4,000 feet up humbled me like nothing ever before and I felt like a pebble, like a tiny little insignificant thing and the world is vaster than I could ever imagine and the world was lasted long before me and will last long after I'm forgotten and it gave me this humility that I was like, there must be a larger force than us up there somewhere. And I was not an atheist, but that day I was certain that there must be a God. And that has nothing to do with race. And if I had not done that, because black people don't do that, I would have cut myself off from a chance to grow. And that's all I'm talking about as a human being. And that's all I'm talking about with post-blackness, that just you can do anything that your blackness is portable and it will go anywhere. <laughs> And you can take it anywhere you want. I mean, after I come out of the air doing this thing that only white people do and get this more certainty of God, well, where would I take that? To a black Baptist church in Brooklyn. So, I mean, like my blackness would go up in the air, would come back down with me and go to church with me. So, you know, post-blackness is about liberation, that you can do anything. Now, post-racial is this sort of linguistic con man. I mean, it's a term for which there is nothing, there is no actual thing behind it. Like money, there's supposed to be a piece of gold to represent every dollar you have down at the treasury. There is no gold down at the linguistic bank behind post-racial. It doesn't actually mean anything. It's supposed to mean uh, that race doesn't matter anymore or that racism is over. We don't even have a consensus on what it means. None of these things are true. So post-racial is this term that I hate. I actually wrote a piece in the New York Times trying to attack and tell people don't use this term because it doesn't mean anything, as opposed to post-black, which is trying to get at the complexity of what it means to be black now. Thank you. you so Dr. Dyson, let me bring you into the conversation. Um, just left your course, your class teaching. How would you incorporate some of the very poignant constructs that you incorporate into this book and into your foreword into your classroom setting so that you kind of open the dialogue, um, not allow for such a narrow uh, definition of blackness, but broaden it? How would you approach it from that angle? Well, I'm just happy to be here uh, with you 
and uh, my man Sir Ray. Um, I, I did. I wasn't trying to make an entrance. I was coming as my last class of the semester, so you know I couldn't miss that because I can't afford to be that post black because I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really can't. Because I don't want to be postpaid. So. <laughs> <laughs> for real though <laughs> for, for shizzle post nizzle alright um, but when um, you know what I wrote in that foreword is an overflow from what I already know think and appreciate and what Teray has brilliantly evoked in um, a provocative and I think rather substantive fashion because the hardest thing to do is to explore something in public, on stage or page, and allow the process of that learning to seep through uh, the process so that it spills out into the world and causes slippages where once sturdy, secure footage occurred. Right? I mean, if you can roll with that metaphor, if you can flow with that. So that's what he's doing. This book is a cudgel to some, a baton to others, a wake-up call, a reminder um, that we're already doing what Ture is talking about. What he's trying to do is name it. What he's trying to do is specify it. What he's trying to do is articulate it. Whether you're talking about Stuart Hall articulation or whether you're talking about Barack Obama articulation. I mean, black people don't do that. They don't be president. Well, that's what he did. He the president now. Before him, there was none other. No one else, despite the conspiracy theory of blackness that there have been five black presidents. Well, if we didn't know, it don't really count. <laughs> right? It, it just don't count. So, um, you know, in my classes, I do a lot. I'm teaching a class on Jay-Z. I'm teaching a class on Jesse Jackson. And both of them embody rigorous challenges to conceptions of blackness, which is what Ture is inviting us to do. Rooted in but not restricted by blackness. That blackness is an active process of existential assertion, of philosophical engagement, of constant rhetorical analysis of the world by visions, grammars, languages, experiences, limits, constraints, and free thinking outside of all of that. Because there's a tradition in the history of black people trying to challenge the bitterly imposed constraints upon our existence. And that's what Ture is inviting us to understand. So in my own classes, when I appropriate ideas about challenges to blackness, we, or in the earlier generation, we talked about non-essentialized blackness. That's what he's talking about. But see, you can't just go around talking about essentialized blackness as the construct that has demythologized the notion of a singular blackness. That's cool, but he want to sell books and get people to understand what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> right? Um, and because he's translating very profound ideas into language that everybody can understand, that ain't to be sniffed at either. Because a lot of the stuff he's doing is translation work. You can find this in Stuart Hall. You can find this in Paul Gilroy. You can find this in Hazel Carby. You can find this in Farrah Jasmine Griffin. You can find this in Salamisha Tillett. You can find this in Dyson and West and whoever else. 
But the point is, he wants to translate. I did write the introduction. I'm sad. You know, right? I did write that. And it was an honor to write it because this young man is on to something. And he's on to something about naming it in a fresh way that forces us to defamiliarize ourselves with what we assume blackness to be. Now, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I understand about blackness, the more I understand, the less I understand about blackness. Mm. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Right? So, so I be like, dang, I didn't know black, that, that's, that's my, dang, I didn't know black people, fill in the blank. <laughs> dang, I didn't know, and I'm 53 years old, and I'm a pretty smart guy, and I know a lot of stuff about Negroes. <laughs> right? I do. But... The more you know, or black or African or post-black, I mean, I don't want to get insulting. Uh, so the point is that, obviously, the more we know, the more we learn, the more we study, the more we teach, we begin to see, oh, a new book on slavery teaches me that the low country was different in terms of its appropriation of certain forms of hegemony than it was in some of the out country. So some of the, so what happened in North Carolina was different than what happened in Maryland. You begin because you learn constantly and relentlessly that is what Teray is inviting us to do. What we take for granted to defamiliarize blackness, because the more you think you're familiar with blackness, the more you assume you can possess it, you can control it. Sit down, blackness, sit down. Ubu, sit down, right? We take blackness on a leash. Blackness is breaking out the leash. Blackness is constantly challenging our ability to tie it to a fire hydrant. It's going to piss on us. By us tying it up, uh, or it, should, it will can urinate it profusely. Can it be a bird instead it, of a it dog? Can, be, okay, can it be a bird in the analogy? It can drop a gift can it be from above. <laughs> it can drop, right? It can do all of that. So I'm just saying, for me, blackness is complicated. It's a complicated configuration of possibility and real, powerful, empirical, uh, uh, substantive identities. It's not just merely ethereal, but between the interaction of theory and substance of reality is where blackness is tracked, and that's what he's doing so brilliantly in this and, book. And, and in the name of trying to name something that already existed, that's part of why I talked to 105 people for this book, because it wasn't just me opining on this is what I see as I sit on my throne. I want to talk to a lot of people and a lot of different people, and the book itself becomes a conversation, and I include the questions that I ask these people at the beginning of the book rather than at the end, so you can be part of the conversation, you can be talking back to the book, you can ask yourself the questions, and you can get involved in the conversation. And naturally, in saying that blackness is infinite, right, that anything can, that blackness can take any shape or form that a black person can imagine to give to it, you know, as Skip Gates says, there's 40 million black people, there's 40 million ways to be black, then you can't really sort of defeat the, the idea of saying, well, I disagree with you. I'm like, well, you are proving that I'm correct in disagreeing with me because we don't have this monolithic conception of blackness. We don't have a monolithic conception of post-blackness. But it's not meant to uh, usurp or change or take over black, African-American, Negro. It's not meant to sit on that line of nomenclature that's been going on for a long time. I prefer black. Some of you might prefer African-American. It doesn't touch that discussion, right? It's sort of a, where I'm saying we're in a post-black era where the freedom to be black is infinite and you can perform or embody blackness any way that you want. I want to talk about the complicated parts of it. In particular, um, you mentioned something in your book about having this Teflon skin shield. or shield, um, and building that up. 
Um, and you talk in particular about the white gaze and the black gaze and how basically you've built up this shield by being around some of the individuals that you interviewed, being around some wonderful mentors who've almost given you an inoculation, if you will, um, to be able to synthesize and see some of this for what it is and all that it can be. But I want to talk about the Teflon shield and how, how, yeah. do, you, yeah. how do you instill that um, into well, racism? I mean, you know, uh, the te I mean, racism which is still very much part of our world. In no way am I saying that, that we are beyond racism. That I spend two uh, long chapters dealing with the varied ways that racism functions today. And one of the people I interview, interviewed talked about racism is spirit murder. That quite often people are saying and doing things that are meant to make you think you are less intelligent, less valuable, less human, less worthy. You are lesser than. Um, you know, be lesser than even lesser even than three fifths, right? And so, what you need to do, and it's very hard to do this, right? Is you need to have a private view of yourself, and it's very difficult to do that because the sociologists talk about that we naturally and and necessarily take part of our self image from the way that other people, that society views us. It's called the looking glass self. You cannot dissociate the way society sees you from the way you see yourself, right? But you still somehow have to fight through that and have a private view of yourself and your worth. And that is the only way as a black person that you can get through what seems like a extremely well-funded multimedia campaign to constantly remind you you ain't shit. And, <laughs> and if you don't have this Teflon shield that will, that will repel the attacks against you, then you will fail. And I learned that from reading Malcolm X and from watching Mike before I knew him and watching Cornel West and some of the, the black men who I was close to, um, some of who you would know, some of you wouldn't know. And it worked, you know, my father also, um, you know, if you knew him, then you would know, yes, that makes sense that he got that from his father. Um, and, it, and it worked out fairly well, uh, an, an, an example. When I was about 25 years old, I was a freelance writer writing for a bunch of magazines. I really wanted to get a contract at Rolling Stone. That is the goal and the dream of freelance writers, because then instead of constantly asking the magazine, can I get another assignment, can I get another assignment, and you get paid with each assignment, now, we're okay, we're going to give you 10 stories this year at this rate. You get a check every week, and then you write when they come to you and say, we want you to write this, this, and this. It's a much better deal for the writer, but it's getting married to the magazine, so the magazine has to really want to work with you. So I was asking this, uh, the big music editor, um, you know, you got to give me a contract. Let's, let's do something. I can do this for you. And he says to me, well, we know that you can write about Run DMC, but could you write about Eric Clapton? And it's a rhetorical question. He's not really asking me, he's not giving me a chance to defend myself and say, well, this is what I would say about Eric Clapton, which some of you who laugh understand immediately. This is a horrific example because Eric Clapton comes from the blues. He idolizes Jimi Hendrix. So it would be very valuable to have a black writer talk to Eric Clapton. But he's immediately like, you could write about that little hip hop shit. But when we get to the big stage, this is Rolling Stone, we get to the icons of rock and roll, your voice is not wanted. Now, it never occurred to me, even as a 25, 26-year-old, young, relatively inexperienced writer, it never occurred to me that he was correct. And in retrospect, it's like, well, why didn't it when this sort of titan of Rolling Stone said, 
when we get to the big subjects, you be quiet, right? It never occurred to me in the deepest recesses of my imagination that he was correct. I mean, if, so if he fired a bullet at me, it would bounce off and fall to the ground. What occurred to me was, how can I convince this person that he's wrong? And I can't do that in this room, but I can pull back out of this room and retreat and strategize and figure out, okay, what can I do? And if he had convinced me, which he could have, there's, the literature is filled with stories. Malcolm X tells the, tells the teacher he wants to be a lawyer. Well, you can be a carpenter. And that changes the scope of Malcolm X's career. Juanima Lubiano, the brilliant Duke law professor, one of the smartest people in America, is told when she gets to the graduate counselor at, uh, gra the graduation counselor at school, in high school, well, you know, you could be a secretary. She doesn't go to college and until 10 years later and then becomes one of the most brilliant people in America, but she's derailed in her academic path because one white person in a moment told her, you're not really that smart. And all the messages that her parents had told her floated away. So, you know, the, the ego can be very fragile in these sort of moments when an important person tells you, you ain't shit. It's very easy to begin to believe it. Um, I pulled back, didn't believe him because I had my father and Malcolm X and Mike and other people telling me, don't believe it, you're awesome, you can do. And my ego was outsized of what it should have been, but I see black, especially male egos constantly outsized for what they should be because that's just protection. That's just the Teflon shield protecting them from this world constantly telling them you ain't nothing. So anyway, walked out of that room, started to figure out who are the smaller white artists who nobody else in the magazine will want to cover? I want to cover that person so they can say, oh, look, wow, he did something on somebody that has nothing to do with hip-hop, that has nothing to do with blackness. And I ended up getting to write about Tori Amos, little singer-songwriter, um, pianist, um, you know, like very feminine artist, very white artist, you know, had a great time with her. Oh, wow, he could write about white people. And this year they gave me a story on Adele. So, you know. Very good. Very good. Um, so, again, going back to sort of the, the complicated layers, um, there's a point actually where you and Dr. Dyson talk about um, different constructs and uh, the terminology that you use escapes me, but really speaking about the levels in terms of institutionalized racism, personally mediated racism, and how that you is You mean the modes, the yes. personal modes, yes, yes, yes. 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 The introverted, the, yes. the ambiverted, and yes. the extroverted. Well, you right. started that idea. Right. I changed right. the terms that, yes, you, you that you used, but... Right. Okay, okay. yeah. All right, gentlemen. All right. Come on now. But, but you go, but there's multiple modes within... But what within. I want to know is how does that, how does that that challenge um, our ability to open or broaden our, our view of blackness? Well, it's partly about understanding that that exists, right? We want to have this fiction that like, you know, well, you do blackness this way and you do blackness that way, right? And we talked about introverted blackness, right? That Condoleezza, Colin Powell, I just happen to be black. It's an accident of birth. Don't judge me on that. The ambiverted blackness, right? Like, it's part of me, but it doesn't define me. Barack Obama, right? Um, you know, and then the sort of extroverted blackness. I be black. That's what I'm all about. Jim Brown, Jay-Z, you know, I mean, that's my life struggle. But the truth of it, right, is that we all have the ability to flow and code switch and move between those modes and your ability to get ahead in society will be predicated on how well you can do that. And of course, the queen 
of code switching is Oprah. No doubt. And that's a brilliant, you know, because I talked about it as incidental, accidental, and uh, what's the other one? Uh, yeah, incidental, accidental, and intentional. That's what I, and intentional, and intentional. Yeah, okay, I got the cards in my mind. So, and, and as Teray said, as I, I made the argument, because I made this argument in my Bill Cosby book, that black people move in and out of these all the time. So that, because depending on the situation, you might be incidentally black. When you're trying to get a, a raise at the white job, you're just, you're just incidentally black. Look. <laughs> hey, Bob, how are you? <laughs> Fine, and how are you? Right? I remember this article in the New York Times where they said, you know, when you go in to apply for a job, you don't want to get your Stephen A. Smith on. No, I mean, you know what? And Stephen A. is my man, but you I know, but a. you know what I'm saying. Oh, all right, yeah. That's my dude. I love Stephen A. But, uh, but so, you know, you could be incidentally black because it's not essential to the definition of your persona as you seek the raise. So anything that might intervene on you in a raise, you leave behind. Uh, you could be accidentally black. You know, oops, I just stumbled upon it. There it is. Where the <laughs> hell did it come from? Um, and then look, you could, as Teray said, you could code switch between, because we all do it, depending on if we're at the company picnic. Did you see that Doris Day show? Wasn't it great? It's amazing, right? Now, the company picnic with mostly white folk. If you're uh, like Barack Obama running for office, you know, you, 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 I think yours was amberverted. Mine was the incidental blackness rooted in but not restricted by the blackness. Uh, and then he knows how to signify. He's down in South Carolina. He's arguing against the notion that people have said he's a Muslim, right? <laughs> and he don't want to diss Muslim people because his family is Muslim, despite what people have said. But they try to turn him into one. But at the same time, he's going like, what? He said, I went to the same church for 20 years with, not with, with, my Bible in my hand, right? And then he says, then he starts, th this I found be, to be quite remarkable. He starts going, he says, what, you know, he says, do y'all know about the okie doke? They said, black people, this is mostly black audience. Yeah. He said, you've been bamboozled. You've been had. <laughs> and so what's interesting, Barack Obama, while denying he's a Muslim, cites the most famous black Muslim there is to signify his Christian identity. That's just macadocious signifying, and that's a complicated blackness. So, um, or as you're in and out of blackness, you're swerving in and out of blackness like swerving in and out of traffic. That means you're in control. A lot of people assume that means that you've lost. No, that means when I can do hairpin turns at 90 miles an hour, I'm in control of the machine. And so understanding blackness as a force, as an agency, as a vehicle that you express yourself with, that you articulate, is to have a sense of joie de vivre with your blackness. It's not a heavy, burdensome thing. It's something that sings, that lives in your breast, that you want to shout to the world. But the point to Ray made that is extremely important, you know, people, our good friend Bill Maher uh, says that one of the, he doesn't have a problem with hip hop's discussion about women. He thinks that's cool. He said that's just honest discussion about relationships. His problem with hip hop is the ego and the bragging. And on his show one day, I said, wait a minute, though, man. I said, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr?
What were they doing? That was a hip-hop battle. That was, you stepped on my shoes, you took my stuff. Now they had a duel. That's hip-hop. That's gangster secretary of treasury going on. Rat-a-tat-tat, I never hesitate to put a secretary of treasury on his back. So, so the reality is, is that the outsized ego of black men is a protection against the relentless demonization of an assault upon African-American identity, the ocho cincoing, the T-O-ing. Why is it that, that quarterbacks, but especially wide receivers who are black, do their thing, do their dance, the, the running backs do their thing, their performance? The performative characteristic of blackness is to keep nimble the possibility of our existence while others are forcing us to dance to their tune. We'd rather choreograph our own destiny in the midst of our restriction. That's what the beauty of blackness is about. So I see it that way. We move in and out, we do our thing, and we never get hemmed in by a narrow conception of what our possibilities are. That's right. And that, and that, that, that nimble moving is part of why I, talk, I spent so much time talking about the Wayne Brady episode on Chappelle's show, right. which is a really yeah, brilliant hilarious. moment yeah, where, where Wayne Brady, who had been attacked by Chappelle or by Paul Mooney on right. the show of, you know, performing blackness in a sort of in the sort of incidental accidental way right Wayne Brady makes uh, what is it Paul yeah, makes Brian Gumbel look right. like Malcolm X right, like oh right. my god and <laughs> right. and and Wayne Brady saw Dave in Beverly Hills was like yo you really hurt me with that so they came up with this whole episode and you see Wayne tracking back and forth right he starts the episode holding flowers and then next thing you know he's doing the training day thing driving Dave around and he shoots somebody and then the cop stops them and he's acting all nice and Pollyanna and he sings Dion Warwick right which is a very crucial choice right if he sings Al Green the comedy's not the same right. but Dion Warwick's music is lacks the same edge that some of the other soul music from that time has hasn't traveled as well through the decades so he's singing Dion Warwick right he's being really performative look blacks have microphones on them all the time they're <laughs> to sing and the cop is singing with them and then he drops the mic and he twists the guy's neck and he kills him right but so he's going back and forth to the edges of the spectrum all the time i mean this is a caricature but this is what we do on a right. normal basis and it's right. no more selling out than when you're with your friends and you might curse a little bit and talk a certain way and then you go to your grandmother then you talk in a more delicate way. It's mediating your personality based on your audience. It's intelligent. It's not not keeping it. It's not selling out. Right, right, all right. right. All right, all right. Right. Situation. Yeah. Situation. <laughs> Amen. Um, Situation, for sure. I have one more question, because I really know we want to open it up to the audience um, and hear from you. But, you know, you've opened the dialogue for this. Um, you, you've really given us um, a venue um, to begin to to look inwardly and look outwardly, if you will, um, regarding post-blackness. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here now that you've written this and you've given us some of the tools, beautiful tools? I mean, I want us to think about blackness in a slightly deeper way. I want us to give each other the freedom to be black in the way that we want to be black. I want us to sort of liberate our conception of blackness and not think, well, that person's not really doing it correctly. I mean, I have great disagreements with Herman Cain and Clarence Thomas and Condoleezza Rice, the things they think and the way they perform. And 
none, none of them appear to me from a distance to be people who I would enjoy having a beer or a glass of wine with. But I'm not going to insult them and suggest they are not still living under white supremacy and they're not still black and they are doing blackness in the way that they so choose. You have the right to be conservative if you want. You have the right to be a Republican. You, you have the right to do these things, a, a political right, spiritual right, human right. And I have the right to disagree with you and argue you down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's an important point to remember though. Because I remember I was on uh, The View, and um, what's her, um, the, J Joy, 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 Joy. So jo they were mad. They were talking about Condoleezza Rice, right? And I had made a critical comment. And so then Joy was coming at me, because, you know, protector. And I've since been on Joy's show. We've had a great time. But, you know, they were mad at me, like, how dare I criticize her? She's a black woman. I said, being black ain't got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I said, I ain't ch challenging her blackness. I'm challenging her inhabitation of her particular political viewpoint, which I think is destructive to blackness. And I'm willing to make that argument. See, blackness is like feminism. Post-blackness is like feminism. Feminism doesn't mean that men and women are going to agree. It just means men don't have the last word. Right? That's, that's right. Feminism don't mean you and your woman going to get down together. Oh, yes, I agree with everything you say, honey. It means that when y'all arguing, who wins the argument is predicated upon who makes the most sense, what kind of logic is put forth, not appeals to implicit forms of masculine privilege. So blackness is the same way. This challenge to blackness. It, it ain't that Condoleezza Rice is not black. What I ain't got a problem with her blackness. It's fine. She grew up in Birmingham. I like another woman from Birmingham named Angela Davis uh, in terms of what she inhabited. But hold on. That doesn't mean that Condoleezza Rice ain't black because Condoleezza Rice is taking some heat for saying that it's genetically, you know, written into the code of America that we have racism. Condoleezza's made some interesting points. Colin Powell stood up at the Republican convention and was much more aggressive about assaulting the privileges of white men in the Republican Party than a lot of liberals and neoliberals have done with our own so-called Democratic Party. So, so my point is, it ain't got nothing to do with whether you black or not, as Therese said, because Clarence Thomas going to be black till he dead. In fact, the reason he's so mad at some Negroes, because you treated him bad because he was a dark-skinned black man. Right? <clears throat> right? So, you know, touch your white neighbor and say, neighbor? No. Uh, <laughs> Dark skin versus light skin is a real problem in black America. What? Jiminy Christmas, I didn't know. So the thing is, is that when Harry Reid says that Obama is light skin, or as we would say in the black community, light skinned it, light skinned it, light skinned it, and doesn't speak with a Negro accent if he don't want to, there it is. There's post-blacknesses bitter barrier, the imposition of a narrow understanding of what it means to be legitimately black. Because first of all, as articulate as Obama is, he ain't the most articulate and he ain't the first one to be articulate. That's number one. He's a bad boy, but within black rhetoric per se, he about a C plus. And that's on a good day. The average Negro preacher with 12 members in his church on Sunday morning is going to say this morning I want to talk about you know the subject God is love. I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to talk about love. I want to talk about is. 
Is you got good religion? Is your all on the altar a sacrifice late? So that Negro can deconstruct is with Kantian originality. So in our tradition, Gardner Taylor, Caesar Clark, Carolyn Knight, Freddie Haynes, rhetorical geniuses dipped into the healing waters of black expressive articulation. However, for a broad dominant mainstream audience that can accept certain elements of blackness, Obama is as black as America can stand. Right, hold on. And as much of blackness that can survive the translation he embodies, that's his genius, he understands how to mold and articulate an acceptable, palatable conception of blackness that remains subversive even as it is seductive. So when you understand that, that's a different level of comprehension. There ain't nobody saying one is black and the other one ain't. They're all black. Different modalities of blackness simultaneously expressed in different fronts means that blackness has metastasized. What we're talking about is metastatic blackness. <laughs> that has spread across the cells of black existence and so it spreads widely. It's like a cell that is on the loose and the beauty of this book is that it's an edifying cancer. <laughs> if we can say it that way. If we can say it. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Please, um, Come up and join us at the microphones if you have questions. Yes. Hello. Hello. My name is Sean Breeze. Um, nice to meet both of you gentlemen. Hey, thanks for the, the tweets, man. Thank Well, yeah. somebody pays attention to my tweets. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I well, did. now here I am in real life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you made an interesting comparison with um, sports when you talked about the Ocho Cincoing the uh, wide receiver blackness. Mm. Um, other contemporary white athletes, Aaron Rodgers with his uh, title belt mimicking, um, Tim Tebow with his style of play. Right. Um, you can see kind of a tanning, as Steve Stout with his, uh, one of your contemporaries would say, of right. black culture, but it not necessarily being looked at in the same way as in bad or overly over the top or cocky. Could you speak to a little bit, uh, both you and Mr. Di Torre and Mr. Dyson, if you could speak to a little bit why this tanning occurs of black culture, but it's not necessarily looked at as harshly, stylistically, when done by whites? Mm -hmm. Great point. Yes, thank you. Thank you for your question. Um, I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure I see the stylistic blackness in Tebow and Aaron, right? I mean, when they're playing, I mean, they, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Well, when I say Tebow, I mean his kind of street ball type of play, very Charlie Ward-esque, very Michael Vick movement-based, poor mechanics, the things we say about... Well, Vick's mechanics are not the, poor. But those are the things that we say about black right. athletes, like, um, like Terrell Pryor. He's a great athlete, but his mechanics aren't great. Uh, he's a great leaper, but his shot isn't great when we talk about basketball players. But Tebow has similar stylistic, but is more athletic I'm, I, gifted. I'm a yeah. bit uncomfortable putting Tebow in the <laughs> class with Michael Vick, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, Absolutely. Vick is extraordinarily beautiful to me in terms of what he does on the field. And I mean, you know, I mean, 
I've talked a lot about Vic uh, this year, but I see, you know, I see basketball when I see him. You know, he reminds me of Allen Iverson, which is interesting because they come from almost the same neighborhood relatively. Um, Tebow is like, you know, he's just, you know, I mean, with Tebow, I see like white privilege personified because like he can't throw, ergo he runs, you know, like he can cover up for his deficiencies by doing something that the quarterback is not really supposed to do as opposed to Vic, who's giving you added value. You're getting two positions for one, whereas Vic is, I mean, the central activity of what he does, he's supposed to do, he cannot do very well. He is by far the worst thrower out of all the starting quarterbacks in the NFL. Right. And it's bizarre to me that that you get the job when you are so poor at the central activity at which your job... I mean, I wish I could have a job where I got paid millions and there were millions of other people who wanted to do that job and I was poor at the... Poor! Not oh, not average, but poor at the central activity behind the job. But but what's interesting... But what's inter- that That's... Both of you are engaging in high-level theoretical analysis of sports. Uh, there's no doubt. This number one. I'm impressed. All right. But but let me tell you about the reappropriation of blackness in Tim, Tim Tebow's body as a site of what I talked about metastatic blackness. Because now you got a you got a YouTube video that puts his face on the DJ Khaled. All I do is win, win, win. And at the end of the day, the central preoccupation with quarterbacks is to win a game. And Tebow has won, which is quite interesting. So I don't deny the legitimacy of the white privilege model there. But I think what my brother was saying here, though, is that at the very conceptual uh, level, that when they used to talk about the difference between Larry Bird was a smart player, Mm. poor mechanics in terms the same way you talk about Tebow, but it was seen as mechanistic, productivistic, and as a result of that, more serenely intellectual and mm. cerebral. Mm. So what you're saying to be is true, I think, but my brother's point here is that Larry Bird's failure to engage in any fluidity was seen as the manifestation of the projection of intelligence, mm. whereas Michael Jordan just was a natural. No intelligence involved there. Right. He just flew. He just jump out of right? the gym. See what I'm saying? So I think that's your point. So S- in similar, terms of style. Similar also to Serena I, Williams as a tennis. Th- exactly. She's right. just a great athlete. But I also was asking more about the signifying. Well, athlete. let me. I want to get to that. So I was trying to use and that as pro. Next person go after. Okay, as as Manuel Kant would say, the uh, propodeutic, the thank introductory. Thank you. Thank you. But let me say thank this. You. Let me say this though. Let me just say this in regard to your specific question. I agree in this sense that the demonization of white people who invents any style. When you were talking earlier about um, Eric Clapton, who was just named the number two guitarist of all time behind Jimi Hendrix. Right, ahead of B.B. King and Prince is number 30 or something. So what's interesting, what's interesting, right, Albert King is in there and so on. But what's interesting is that I think you're right. I think that the analysis of black identity and style is already seen through a prism that will consign black people to a specific category that when inhabited by white people may not operate the same way. The same cues are not kicked in. What is seen as natural and normal, whether it's inferior or not, is on a different reality than when African-American people or other black people inhabit that. And I think in this case, the, the Aaron Rodgers kind of you know title belt kind of thing, now none of them possess the beauty of style of no. uh, the average Ocho Cinco or Tio or right. somebody 
somebody who's doing the, you know, popcorn at the end of the thing or doing the running man or whatever they were doing. I don't know what's more recent, the, the, the WAP or whatever that they're doing. Okay, you see how long, you see how long well, I, I see, I want to, I want to take it, I, I just want to take it out of the realm of what the media and the fans are saying about these different individuals and into what's happening in the game which is that over the decades that I've been watching the NFL and the NBA, especially the NFL, has made a pointed and, and conscious effort to wipe black uh, celebratory, enthusiastic right. style out right. of the game. And right. when I was a kid, there were choreographed dances, right. and the team would kind of get together and right. celebrate the touchdown together. And it's a very black way of doing it, right? And, and the NFL in particular has worked to scrub that out of the game. Right. You know, the same way you see the NBA, for some reason, uh, thinks that Style. their civil rights are allowed to perpetuate into when you walk into the building, easy with the jewelry, right. easy with the headphones, right? right? Put on a suit, right? Because we're going to point. work as if we're Fortune 500 executives. You can't be showing your swagger as you're walking into the building. I mean, I wonder if they could even sue on like a civil rights level. Of, you can't you tell us that. what to do as we're walking into the building wow. to go to work. Right. But, you know, that a fear of the of black style optic, of exuberant optic, yes exuberant optic. optic black style you see in the powers that be running these things trying to scrub the blackness clean to make it palatable for the suburban white family to feel comfortable to go to an NFL game to go to an NBA game not at all afraid strangely of a bunch of white men in 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 baseball fighting or in a hockey, beating the hell out of each other. That's a whole other that's a Or whole drinking, other guzzling beer. Or, I mean, or yeah, the, I the owner just... of the team can have swagger. George Bush owns the Texas Rangers. <laughs> Not going to, yep. Not tell you what I'm going to do. Tell you what I do now. Right? Swagger for days, at least faux swagger. And then on the other hand, the real swaggists who are out there get demonized and dogged. You're absolutely right. But I think, it, I think it's relevant and resonant that the NBA has rules that if you even come off of the bench and right. it's a fight moment, right. that you are immediately suspended. Gone. It's even just walking to see what happens. Right. You're going to break it up, you're suspended. Baseball, the let them all out. come out. They're right. going to dance. The Ron our testing of Black America. <laughs> Next question. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, or will be. I heard. I heard you on the radio today. You made a comment. Uh, well, state. Which one are you talking about? This gentleman, this gentleman in the middle. Yes, Mr. Who well, I'm not a fan of at all. Okay. What's your I name? Think, I think he's a puppet of white supremacy, especially the Zionists. My name is Willie Davis. Address, phone number. I mean, come What's on, your man. question? I can't. I can't say what I feel. Okay, but what's your comment question? And everything. Uh, my, your comment was that uh, Obama can't do the same thing that Bush did in hiring blacks. Uh, Bush hired Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice and put them in some very critical positions. You're saying Obama couldn't do that because what people would say, he's looking out for blacks. Well, what did we vote for him for? I mean, you know, I mean, he forgot about us like the average bourgeoisie white black that benefited on the blacks of people that went out and fought and died. You understand what I'm saying? So, you know, you see you guys in the street, you know, you bourgeoisie blacks that benefited on blacks that went out and fought and died and worked in steel mills and that kind of thing. You sit up here and you forgot your past. You know, you I'm talking to me or are you talking to my I'm man? talking 
to whoever it applies to, but I'm talking to him specifically. If it to Ray. Why don't you say his name? I don't know his name. I'm, I'm telling you his name. His name is Teray. I, I, I told you who I was talking You said Billy Davis. You told us Billy. So you called your name. Just call him by his name. What I'd like you to do is can you just call the question? Can you just call the question? The gentleman in the middle, Thank you so much. Oh, brother. All right. I mean, yeah, he wants the respect to be answering his question, but you know what? Ray, 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 you don't want to call. You know what? Next, may I finish? You know what, sir? Let me, let me. Next question. There's a young man behind you, actually, that we'd love to go. So there's a young man behind you that I'd love to go. If you don't have a question, sir. I beg your pardon. If you don't have a question, I'd love this young man to go. I have a question. I'm asking him. He's saying that I'm. I have a question. I'm saying to you the statement that he made today. And then he's come back and say how black Obama is. Is that being black? Only, only, only time he mentioned anything about black is when uh, he's lecturing blacks, like the, like the Black Caucus, or he's uh, defending uh, Gates and the policeman that locked him up. But he can't find any other situations where he feel like speaking up about black people being persecuted or treated unequally. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. come on, man. Right. You know, you keep saying this guy is black. I don't even think he has a black experience. And mm -hmm. then on top of that. Mm -hmm. His father, whom he said abandoned him, well, his mother abandoned him too. So why, why, excuse me, why, I mean, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm making somebody feel uncomfortable or something. Well, I'm no, just, I mean, I'm trying you know, to get to the question. I mean, this guy, and this so guy what I want to do is, this I want to thank you for your for comment. This guy's been here for 15 minutes talking about basketball. Sir, I want to you know thank you for your comment. And I'm asking some pertinent questions. And you don't even want to let me speak. No, let's start. Okay, I keep let, let me The question answer. you were taking a long time. I want to thank you yeah, for your comment. Yeah. And if you'd let somebody else go, I'd appreciate well, it. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, you made that statement today. So where, where do you feel like Obama's black? Okay. okay. Or that he's concerned about black That's issues or black people? Okay. So you, I'll answer too. I'm going to answer too. So you're answer. saying Obama's not black. I, I mean, I'm not really sure where to locate that Obama's not black. Let me just say, can I say this? Let me let me say this. Hold, hold, hold on, y'all. Like we like we in church. Can you give could y'all hold on? Shh, shh. You know how we do in church. <laughs> Look. Don't do Don't do that. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. There's no need for that. It's all right. We 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 are right. After police, okay. uh, look. <laughs> After police, no, coming no. straight from the underground. No, no. Look, look, look. No, no. We're good. Wait a minute. We're Wait a minute. Hold it. We no, can't make a martyr. All right, oh, right. Mr. Dyson. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. It's your, it's your Give house. Give us a moment. I'm Give just us a moment. Dyson, let yes, me just say. I was going to say something. This is being recorded, and I must tell you, in terms of a library, this is the liveliest that this library has. <laughs> 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 ah. And we. We are so proud that we can get thought-provoking discussion going on. So there you go. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Dawkins, right. we're cool. I mean, the thing, the we're thing cool. that I would say. But I want to say something. Well, I know I want you to say that. But the, the thing that the thing that I would say is that <laughs> is that Bruce Lee talks about the value of having excellent enemies, and that they will bring out the best in you, and that you should pray for your opponent to be at his best so that you can see what your best would be. And I would wish to have excellent enemies. 
All right, good. And I'm still wishing. That, that was sophisticated. So let me, let me say this. <laughs> and that was very subtle. <laughs> okay. Real subtle. That's real right, subtle. Right, it's real subtle. Right. It's real subtle. But let me, let me be more, a little bit more explicit on the pre-blackness, not post-blackness tip. Um, let me say this, sir. The, the, the brother, uh, brother Billy, I actually happen to agree with a large degree of what he's saying in terms of criticism that can be civilly made. But here's the problem. On the, when you say that's right, here's the problem. When you step to the microphone in a dehumanizing fashion, I've told you four times what my man's name is, and you refuse to do it, you're undercutting the very legitimacy of the point that you could make because you refuse to treat this man like a human, but you want us to understand why Obama can't treat people like humans. You're killing your argument. All right, that's number one. All right. Number two, let me finish, let me finish. Number two, because I'm here on my, yeah. Uh, number two, here's the point. Um, Teray made a point about blackness. I have, I'm writing a book on Obama. I'm making some of the same points that you made. I don't think that Obama has the right to step up to black people and disrespect us and do things to us. It's in a context. I believe that he has limits and constraints imposed upon him. Black people implicitly understand that if Obama goes out saying a bunch of black this, black that, that white folk get their dander up, the hackles are raised, and then we're into a racial, racialized, racialized war when all Obama's trying to do is deal with health care and this, that, and the other. So we understand that, however, However, even with that difficulty, Obama has lectured black people about no more excuses. That's a beautiful thing. Take your own medicine, right? So we understand that just as we know if you are the most powerful man in the world, imagine what it is for us who don't have the legitimacy of public policy or the bully pulpit, but neither do we have the the vicious invective that is hurled against us daily that this man deals with. So it's a both and. So even while I'm critical of Obama at certain spots, spaces, and points for not articulating a, a sense of edifying understanding of a practice politically that could help black people, I also understand the vicious white supremacist forces that are imposed upon him that limit his ability, ironically enough, as the most powerful black man in the world to speak about being black in America as the most powerful man in the world. It's both and. It's both and, not either or. And finally, one of the things, one of the things that when my man still answered the question after being disrespected, let's learn to fundamentally respect each other. Don't invest in your blackness so deeply that you think you're the only possessor of the legitimate authority of blackness. That's the point of my man's book. Let me end by saying this. Howard Thurman said this. You can go to the Atlantic Ocean. Howard Thurman said, you can dip your glass in the Atlantic Ocean. It may be full of the Atlantic Ocean, but it's not all the Atlantic Ocean. Blackness is the same way. You might be as black as they come. You full of black. Your toothpick is black. Your gums are black. <laughs> your your nostrils paper. are black. Your boogers are black. Your, your <laughs> butt is black. Your toilet paper, your toenail, everything black. Black cards, black everything. It ain't all of blackness. So have a little humility when you engage each other. Then we can love each other into a better conception. I hope, I, I hope in your book that you deal. In, in your book, I hope that you deal with the horrific. All right, all right, all right. There's a young man that I'd like to actually have him answer, ask a question. Young man. I just said he should. I agree with you. Okay. We're going to stop this right now. We're going to stop this right now. But I told you. Did you hear me agree with you? 
But I agree with you, dog. I agree with you. I agreed with you. What are you missing? I said, don't lecture us. Oh man, that wasn't that wasn't black. <laughs> are we ready to commence? That's what I'm saying. Are we ready to commence? Okay. He threw a non-black particle up here. All right. There's this young right, man I'm, that's been waiting patiently. Young I'm, man, do you have a question? Can we? I'm just a hype man for this young man who's about to take the mic. Now that we're all quiet and focused and back to loving one another, here's a question. Um, hello, my name is Malik McClamey, and um, I'm 13, and I was just wondering, um, uh, what's the question? <laughs> um, um, what, what do you think that uh, Black Future would be like? Well, thank you for an incredible question, Malik. Um, what do you think the black future will be like? Wow. I mean, you know. The future of blackness. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that I think, I mean, it, it's, it's, it would be nearly impossible to answer the question in, in totality. I mean, as he said, you know, I would have a cup of the Atlantic Ocean, but not the entirety of the ocean. I can give you a small vision of the future, but I can't give you the whole thing. But one thing that is amazing for you to grow up with that I did not grow up with is you will never believe that a black person cannot be president. And that is an extraordinary gift for you to grow up with that you don't see a glass ceiling here. Because we saw a glass ceiling until the day before Iowa 2008. <laughs> We all, even the political science professors in black America saw there was a glass ceiling that we were not yet able to break. And let me tell you a slightly heartbreaking story. When I was about your age and younger, my dream was to be the first black president. And I read all about how JFK won the presidency and I visited his home. I lived in Boston and we went to his library and I thought all the time and I told everybody like I was starting my campaign at 10 years old and I'm telling everybody, I'm gonna be the first black president and I want you to vote for me and I must have told a thousand people. And somewhere along the line, I just stopped saying that. And I talked to my mom when I was writing the book and I'm like, why did I stop saying that? And she's like, I don't know. It just sort of went away. And in retrospect, I think that somehow society told me that a black person could not be president. And how sad and tragic it is that I believe that lie, because I was incorrect, but, I, but society told me that and I bought it. And when I was 17, 18 and applying to college, including applying to Johns Hopkins, I wrote my college entrance essays about wanting to be a political advisor. Now how pathetic is that, that I dreamed at 10 of being the president and at 18 of being an advisor to the president. I couldn't actually imagine myself into being the president anymore. And you are never gonna go through that. You know you could be president. You could be the president of Xerox, because there's a black woman who's the head of Xerox. You could be the head of Merrill Lynch, there's a black man who is the head of Merrill Lynch. You could be the head of American Express, there's a black man right now, the head of American Express. There's so many things that you could do that I couldn't envision at my age. So that is part of the dream and the beauty for you that the sky is the limit. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. 
Um, I read comic books, and um, in DC and Marvel comics, they barely have um, black superheroes, and most of the villains are black. Mm. <laughs> what do you think about that? How old are you? What do you think about that? How old are you? Ten. Beautiful. What's your name? Aman. Aman. Beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, I love that you noticed that, yes. right? Because yes. the message doesn't come into you uncritically. You are aware that DC and Marvel are giving you black villains and white superheroes, so you can already see through the matrix, right? Through the wrongness of that, through the message that they're giving you. And you can go to your uh, your dad, your brother. His father. Your father, and you could say, Dad, why is this? Because you know that that's wrong. Because you know there are black heroes and white villains. So you know what you're reading in the comic books is incorrect. I, I mean, why they're doing it is less important to me than that you are on top of the game and you are aware of the game that they are playing so you can see through it so you will not be got by the game. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, my name is Ernest Davis, and I uh, have two questions, if I'm able to do that. Uh, first, uh, for Tori, you, uh, I, I'm hearing uh, just the, the theme of your book, and I will go read it, is that um, post-blackness is not necessarily about... <clears throat> being defined as who you are, but, well, we're not being defined as your race, but necessarily who you are. Do you think that's kind of like uh, you're, in, you're reintroducing the, the remix of Dr. King's uh, dream speech, um, whereas, you know, we are judged by our, you know, content and not necessarily the, the color of our skin? Um, second question I have is um, one, one of the things I've heard you say is that, you know, uh, throughout this uh, session is that, you know, someone said that you could not do this, so therefore I did not do that. Um, do you think it is the person who, who, tells, who, who actually believes what someone else tells them or the person who is actually telling the person that they can't necessarily do anything where, I guess, the blame lies? Example, you said that... Um, you said that someone uh, was trying to be a certain position. Um, I, I don't, I don't recall it uh, right. per se, but um, they were told that they couldn't do that, so therefore they did not do. You're I do. I mean, you know, it, I, I'm never going to blame the victim, right? I mean, like the people who are sending out these messages that that verbally limit blackness, right, and tell you, well, you can't be a lawyer, you can be a carpenter, you right. can't be an academic, you could be a secretary, right. right? You can't write about Eric Clapton, but you could write about Run DMC. Right. Those people are perpetuating racism, right? They're the ones who are pointing out the borders, right? And they're, they're reminding you there's barbed wire there and you should not cross that. You will get hurt. You stay in your place, you know. Um, the people who believe it I wouldn't blame them. They are told that there are borders and you have it takes more sort of fortitude to learn how to challenge that and to fight back against that. That takes a really active spirit 
you know, and it takes a lot of mentors who tell you, you are powerful and you don't have to accept what these people tell you. You could do anything you want to do. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you have to work to develop this Teflon shield. You know, I read Malcolm X in uh, going from freshman year in college to sophomore year in college that summer. And it still took a couple of years of conscious thought and work and reading other things and, and gleaming from other people, you know, to have this shield to when things would happen, that, that it wouldn't bother me, that it wouldn't, you know, I mean, to have this sort of outsized ego that I know I'm intelligent and I know I can write these stories that I want to write. I know I can do whatever it is that I want to do. And you can't tell me any differently. Um, I mean, you know, we... I mean, you know, like we were talking to the, the, the young man before that being aware of stereotype threat, and I'll unpack that in a second, is the best medicine to begin to deal with stereotype threat. And stereotype threat talks merely about if you are aware of a stereotype about your community, and not just blacks, women, whites, it, everybody goes through this. If you're aware of a stereotype about your community, then you are destined to have to deal with it, right? Not that you're going to repeat it, but you're going to have to deal with it. So they do tests where, you know, uh, black kids take the SAT and they get a certain score. And then they take it again, and they merely have to write at the top of the paper what race they are. And their scores go down. You know, and this goes for everybody. The white PE teacher tests the white kids on how high they can jump. The black PE teacher comes in, says nothing, just says, now we're going to test you on how high you can jump. They jump less high. I mean, isn't that amazing that they don't jump as high because a black man suddenly is asking them how high can they jump? And they know the stereotype that white can't jump as high. So, but if you're aware of stereotype threat, then you can deal with it, right? You can you can combat it better. But even still, you're dealing with what we talk about as John Henryism, right? We all know John Henry, the steel driving man who who fought the machine, and he fought so hard that he that he died. He won the battle, but he died immediately afterward because he's pushing to the nth degree of human ability. Um, you're taking the SAT, and you know that they don't think, or the LSAT, or whatever it is, they know, you know that they don't think black intellect is as strong. So not only are you doing it, but you're doing it with all of us on your back because you want to represent for the race. You know, you want to be Jackie Robinson and push forward and make us look good, right? And not prove the stereotype. And you're doing the test as best you can. But while you know, Josh is just doing the test. You're doing the test and you're dealing with this other mental energy of, I want to make sure they know that black people are intelligent. I'm going to show them. And you need all of your mind to deal with the LSAT or the SAT or the, you know, the entrance exam to be a professor at Johns Hopkins or whatever it may be. So you're doing double work while Josh is just doing singular work, you know, or Jill or what have you. Um, and Jill might be dealing with it on a sexism level, right? So, you know, if you're aware of stereotype threat, then you can begin to push back. So that's part of why we need to let people know, let our people know about stereotype threat so that, we, you know, if we're aware, then we can deal with it. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Good evening. Good evening. Um, I want to take a minute to personally thank you both. I'm a recent transplant to Baltimore, and uh, moving from New York, I, there's a part of me that thought that I would no longer be able to have avenues like this and opportunity like this. So I thank you both, Mr. Dyson and Tori. I don't want to say not Mr. Tori, but <laughs> Tori for coming Tori's good. And, and giving us the opportunity to hear your, your uh, discourse and take part in, in responding. That said, I kind of have one large question with little pieces, and so you can tell me where it gets too big. 
part of what I understand, I haven't read the book, but part of what I understand from the concepts, from the articles and the critiques of the book, which may or may not be fair, um, is that some of the definition or the things being defined as quote unquote blackness have to do with access. Access, economics, and opportunity. And I take, you started with the skydiving um, uh, uh, hypothetical. I take, I guess, great umbrage to that as a concept that should be unpacked by people of color as a question of whether or not they would define that as a black activity. I think for a lot of people, they define that as a wealthy activity, as a privileged activity, as an economically impossible or unlikely activity. And for others, it's just past the realm of groceries, getting home, the daycare, the bills. It's not that they've sat down and said, as a person of color, as a black woman, black man, I don't think black people ought to do this, or I don't think black people do this. It's the the history of the television, the media, the world of, we don't do this, and here are some of all of the underlying reasons. I think the taking of some of that, which is what I understand from some of what the book is about, and making that a cultural definition that we've created and we've limited ourselves by is unfair. And I think it's unfair to the people who don't have the intellectual heft to talk back to you. Um, excellent point. Um, I would push back a little bit on locating it just on middle class has opportunities that working class does not, right? Um, that idea doesn't fully run up the flagpole. Obviously, the more class uh, advantages you have, the more opportunities you have. But at the same time, we all know if you hang out in the hood, there's philosophers in the hood who are co thinking of you know incredible different new things to do and new ways to be black over here. You know, and we know that there is a way that when you're in the middle class. Um, you can get into a sort of rat race situation where you're working so hard just to maintain yourself and your job in the world that you have that you don't have time to sit around and think and pontificate as you know as you would expect as you would stereotype of the middle class, right? So it's not quite so simple as to say, well, you know, this is some middle class stuff to where you know you got the money to go skydiving, you got the money to go to Paris, you know, I don't have the money to get off the block. You know, it. it I think it's a little more. The way that class actually lives is a little more complicated. Now, of course, to your to yes, to you, but of course, to your point, yes, if you have more uh, you know, means and you have more time, leisure time, you're not worried about tomorrow's dollar all the time. Then yes, you have more time to sit and think about your spirit and to go to different places and to experience different things. Absolutely. I mean, you know, but I wouldn't just cut off working class people from this sort of whole situation. But don't you sort of do that when you say that it's a question of post-blackness and blackness? Isn't it? Well, that's not the dialectic, right? It's not post-blackness versus blackness, right? We are still all black, and all I'm saying is that we're in a post-black era to where the freedom that you can take is as far as you want. I mean, like I would look at, for example, and I'm, I'm going to toss it to you in a second, but Sorry, you know, a, a, look at, for example, Jay-Z. Right, who, yes, he's traveling to Paris, but what is his mindset in Paris? Well, I'm a nigga in Paris, right? So has he really escaped being a nigga? No, well, he took his niggerness from Myrtle Avenue, um, or the Myrtle, uh, the Marcy Projects, which is on Myrtle Avenue, if you live in New York, you know that, to, to, to Paris, right? And, it, and any, even in the song, he doesn't really actually deal with what he's doing in Paris, as opposed to, to <laughs> I, I'm gonna let you respond, as opposed to Kanye, 
right, who's clearly trying to deal with a much more complicated vision of blackness. But even though Jay-Z ascends to a very rarefied class, is he still, is he really interrogating blackness in a new way? I would say really no. Go ahead. I know you want to get back in. No, I want to let her get it back in one more time. I'm sorry. I completely reject that for two reasons. One, Jay-Z is a media personality. He's not selling his, uh, us his authentic self. He's selling albums. To have, you do us the same disservice rap music does sometimes when you have us believe that the caricature and the media persona of the person is something we ought to embody. I don't know Jay-Z and I don't know what he's thinking when he's traversing the streets of Paris. I know what he says in an album. We ought not mistake the two. Well, let me ask you this question. True. Hold up. That's a brilliant point. It's a fair point. Do you read Toni Morrison? Yes. <laughs> What's her real name? Oh, Chloe Wofford. Ah. What are you buying? Are you buying Toni Morrison or Chloe Wofford? Are you buying the woman from Lorraine, Ohio? Are you, see, is your point is, well, hold on. I'm saying she's an artist. Okay. All right? But you don't make the same kind of, because now the bias against young people becomes apparent. Right, that young people can't manipulate the masks and persona of blackness to the same degree that a world-recognized artist like Toni Morrison. So, hence my fellow, what is your name, sir? Oh yeah, right. <laughs> 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 Not two Ray, three Ray. All right. Uh, uh, when two Ray talks about niggas in Paris, ball so hard, doesn't want to find me. But first, they gotta find me. What? Ball so hard, MFs got to want to find me like I'm a baller, so they want to impose a fine on me, a tax, a tariff on blackness, but first they got to find me, locate me. So please don't misunderstand that, don't, please do not really consign Jay-Z because he's an artist to the heat bin of mere commercial articulation when he is just as complex, just as fascinating as Chloe Walford, a la, a.k.a. AKA Toni Morrison, is with blackness. God forgive me for my brash delivery, but I remember vividly what these streets did to me. Uh, so when you say that, oh, he's selling us an ideal of blackness, any different than James Baldwin's conception of an argument against Richard Wright in terms of who had the bona fides, even poor black people war over authentic realness, blackness. Nigga, you ain't real. I'm real. You ain't got to have money to say, nigga, you ain't real. You just got to have an idea and a conception. Now, we know that some people here are upset because we're using the N-word in mixed company. Let me say to all white people here, you do not have permission to engage in linguistic <laughs> facility. Let me just say that. I'm just saying that. Let me just say that, right? So so, so we, ain't, we, we might be post-black, but we ain't post-nigga on that. Okay. So, number two, but that's the point. The very, look at what I just did. I drew a curtain back on internalized tension, terror zones that occupy linguistic space because language has been the mediating principle of both self-hatred, some would say, and the hatred of the other that is expressed through language or the appropriation of that term and to attempt to then circulate it in a different fashion. My point is she raises a brilliant point. There are class hierarchies involved in the stipulation and expression of authentic blackness so that the question is some things that only rich Negroes have access to, that's true. But those rich Negroes who, uh, Negroes who have access to it are often read outside of the race as automatically not black and it ain't on a class basis it's on a black basis. You can't have it both ways. Either say you are inauthentically black 
because this shreds a conception of blackness, but you're saying that those who have enough money to engage in that particular practice are somehow illegitimate. So Jay-Z does raise an interesting specter. What happens when you go from Marcy Projects to Paris? When he says, I, I believe, but you don't have to be in the hallway all day talking about how you in the hallway all day. So I'm arguing here that Jay-Z cannot be relegated to the conception of mere commercialized culture when Chloe Wofford, also known as Toni Morrison, is engaging in the articulation of ideas. She wasn't a slave. She imagined herself in Beloved. She read the story, and then as an act of fictive creation, she began to articulate persona. That's fiction, as well as some of the narratives in hip-hop. But they also both can explain and explore the complicated regions of blackness equally proficient. That's all I Amen. want to say. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your question. Oh, Brilliant question. Thank you for your Thank question. question. Very good question. The wonderful thing about tonight is that we will have a book signing, and you will get a chance to stand and talk to these wonderful people. And also, one more plug, Sorry. February 4th, Book Lovers Breakfast. Michael Eric Dyson. The other dude. The we other dude. Three. The other black <laughs> meat. The other Thank black meat. Thank you so meat. much, everyone. We Thank you. That's quick, it? If you have time. That's it? Oh. We wrap, that's it? Well, we had three quick questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we have more okay, questions. Okay. Yeah, no, we're not saying goodnight. We have more questions. Thank you for coming. God you. bless. Right. Yes. I feel like Russell Simmons. Thanks I for know, coming. Right? Goodbye. Uh, All right. Is my man out there waiting on us? Yes. Wait a second, guys. Is my man out there waiting on us? see you in the alley. I'm going to whip your ass. Audience members, can you give us a second, please? Thank you. Hold on. We got more questions. Go ahead. Go ahead, brother. Sir, you have a question? Yes, yes, First song. In the community, my people know me as Walimu, and I'm um, glad that we had this discourse and appreciate that you have added to the whole discussion of not only post-blackness, but blackness. Um, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring this particular dynamic to us and that we failed to protect a brother who just had a disagreement. He wasn't violent. He did not need an well, authority well, figure to come in. Well, well, I would, I would, I would say, I would say, no, I would say that that when you walk to the front of the stage and you, no, no, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about at that point, I think he was incorrect. But when he was right here, you know, you let we, him talk. No, 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 no. What I object to is this: I've been in a lot of these kinds of discussions in white audiences and black audiences. I've seen white intellectual exchange get very heated. Right. I've never seen authority figures come in on someone who disagreed with the speaker. But here among us, it's the same thing when you drive in your car and the police pull up behind you. I, 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 would, for no I, particular no, so no, I thought no, I, I thought I heard no, him shake no, your hands out of my pocket. Yeah, no, my, 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 my point is this. My point is this. You could have represented yourself without having Mike jump in for you, right? And I seen what Mike did, which was you, you fed him a bone, but you still intellectually whipped him. But you didn't comment on the fact that he could have got hurt here by just being in opposition to a point. But one thing you will notice is that one thing you will notice protect ourselves. But the thing you will notice is that we just stood here, right? And when the police came in, we said, no, 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 don't be a part of that, right? I don't know who called the police, but we did not. I said you're critiquing us for what the library did. We didn't have a part of that. Thank you for your time. I don't even know why you're defending this individual. I'm to the fact that here we are, we're talking about blackness. Right. We're talking about we talking about riding down the street. Talking about the police car pulling behind us. 
for no particular reason at all. We talk about the Audubon Ballroom where one Negro shot it. another. So here I we mean, are. Here we are. Basically, Ray, we should have took care of that brother. We all should have said to our to the, wait, we didn't need that. But, but sir, right. wait a minute. Right. We said that. Right. We said that. Right. We don't need this. I'd like to thank the audience for their wait, comments. Let's, let's, get, in, let's, let's, get, let's, let's get, get the ladies and the children. But let me let me say one thing. Let me say one thing, sir. First of all, I told the man, I don't think he heard me, that I agreed in substance with most of his criticism of Obama. Did I not say that? Yes, I you said did. that, number one. Number two, I asked him, in all due respect, to call my man's name. Don't dehumanize each other. If he can't respect us on that level, if you can't come in with a fundamental level of respect, then you can't expect that in return. We gave it to him. I joked around and said, F the police. Don't bring the police up in here. But let's talk about a tradition of blackness. A tradition of blackness is blackness snuffing out other blackness, killing other blackness because you disagree. Get violent because you don't want to get down with the blackness that way. Uh, the whole history of the nation, well, don't let me call out what it is. My point is, there's a history of black people assuming violent rhetorical poses, visual poses, optical poses, spiritual poses, and emotional poses. Get heated, but do it with respect and love. And when you don't do it with respect and love, we think you got a hidden agenda, because I don't know who you is. I'm from, I'm from Detroit. I'm up in here. If you respect me, respect me with integrity. That's all I'm saying. Otherwise, I didn't come here to get my ass whipped. I came to get taught. All right. Do we have another question? <laughs> Woo. Next question. Um, hi, how are hi, you? hi, how are you all doing? I want to say thank you to the Open Society for hosting this and Enoch Pratt. And thank you all for coming. Um, I don't know how to follow that one, but I wanted to say thank you all for having such a, a positive conversation around this topic. So far, when I, we talk about um, my post, well, post-blackness, it's kind of an ambiguous type of code switching. I want to address it from um, how it affects the African-American female. In light of many of the media images we see, um, shall I say, the Real Housewives of Atlanta, mm. Basketball Wives, mm. Love and Hip Hop, and the worst, the um, the Braxton family. All of these images... Um, Braxton's are the worst? Real Housewives got to be pretty rough. The reason, the reason why... Love I, and Basketball. Say LA. this recently I read a book um, by Sophia Nelson um, redefining um, the black right. woman right. and it talks primarily about the growing number of African Americans who are uh, who are going to higher socioeconomic statuses or acquiring these particular positions throughout their career however these media images that are being portrayed of African Americans are showing that no matter what status you go to, you are still some type of barbaric figure at heart. And in a time when you have interracial dating at a 90% approval rating, which is nothing wrong with that, I'm, I'm, you know, I have nothing wrong with that, but just to make my point, um, that at the end of the day, even with the GBTL um, a community, in, in as much as we respect them, but when it goes to code, every group has their code switching. When they go to their code switching, it's a sister girl, I have an attitude. And no matter what the image is, uh, I think the post-blackness is definitely benefiting the African-American male. But when it pertains to the African-American female, as we go to these different heights, at the end of the day, individuals look at us saying, no matter where you are, even if you are... I don't know, whatever it is, you are still this barbaric sister girl, I'm going to tell you off, angry black woman at core. And how does post-blackness then affect the African-American female, and how can we turn it into a positive life? That's a very interesting question, a very valuable question. Thank you for that. I, I would caution against using television and the most base examples on television 
to make your point uh, just the same way we also have Soledad O'Brien and Suzanne right. Malveaux and Tamron Hall and there are other black women on TV who carry themselves with a lot of dignity. Right. Television in particular is the boob tube. It's meant right. to entertain you, right? We don't all go home and watch PBS, well, right? Uh, well, I, I would like to make this argument. I hate to cut you off because I know what you're saying is quite valuable. However, many individuals are not of the intellect that they're able to decipher in between what is reality and what is fake. So for many people, when they see this Bro. portrayal of African Americans on the screen, this is what they think is real. Right. They think NeNe rests in every one of us. And, and as soon as you say something wrong, I'm getting in your face. And it, and it's amongst all, I mean, it's and I think that it's bad that that is the image, but I think that in post-blackness, as we go as we go to these these heights, that is still the kind of the betrayal or fear of African Americans. I mean, women. I don't see a gendered difference necessary in explaining or dealing with post-blackness that women have just as much freedom and right to perform blackness as they choose going forward and and now. And the you know the you sort of like look what? at like a tiny part yeah. of the world and say let's see there okay, this, well, this, I, this, this extrapolates about O'Brien in black okay. America when she talked she focused on the African American female that they're they're making higher salaries right. and high and having higher positions but they fail to be able to find qualified mates and it just reinforces some of the negative I, stereotypes I, that that yes right, right. I think no. it's some I mean I think that for both of you I'm there sorry. was you no. spoke and then there was a young woman who spoke there I think that there is a, a role there's space if you will for a conversation with post-blackness for issues of class, issues of power, issues of privilege and gender. I do think that mm -hmm. there, there is a, there's a space for that. Um, and I think that that's when we talk about that last question, where do we go from here? Possibly, maybe, it's expanding that space because that's what post-blackness really is, is what Tori is saying. It's allowing room for this to breathe and to grow and not narrow our focus. But I so, do think that there are some, there are, there are gendered limits imposed upon black women. Yes in a way that operate in empirical yes. fashion that we have to acknowledge. And I don't think Therese is denying that. I don't think, uh, Doc, you're denying that either. But I think we have to acknowledge your point in terms of post-blackness that, you know, it's like the internet. You know, they say, well, does the digital divide, then, you know, black people's access to the internet overcome? No, it reinforces prevailing power relations that existed on the terrain, terrestrial stuff, that then get translated into cyberspace. Although cyberspace opens up possibilities where black people can accrue capital and begin to challenge some of the hegemonic relations socially in the terrestrial world, so to speak, right? So in the same way with women, yeah, there's no doubt that when you see the proliferation uh, in cyberspace and on television of black female identities. Unfortunately, Tamron Hall and Soledad O'Brien don't carry the symbolic capital of a NeNe Leakes. Uh, it's not Soledad O'Brien who's brought to the Soul Train Music Awards, it's NeNe Leakes, right, mm. to introduce. So we know that they're operating in real symbolic capital as the arbiters of what's authentically black for women. Mm -hmm. So the question is, I think that when we talk about a post-blackness interrogation of, 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 of female identity is, first of all, for black people to open up spaces for feminism. Yeah. I mean, the, the legitimate resi the resistance to the notion of feminism in black communities is something that a post-blackness ought to challenge. Because what you're talking about is not a, a feature of post-blackness. That's a feature of old-style blackness that said, no, forget that feminism stuff. Until we get free as black people, we can't deal with that. Post-blackness says, no, open that can up and let us understand what's going on in gender. So I think it's actually a way into a more powerful feminist right. argument. And our last question, wait, 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 our yes, last question you. is coming from wait, this young... 
Hi, my name is Amira and I'm eight years old. Hi. My question is, um, if you were a black kid that was walking home from school and a white person asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up and you answer the question, it's like governor or mayor or president or something, and they say you can't be that when you grow up because there's already a white a black person that's already doing that and you won't and nobody will vote for you and you won't be able to do that when you grow up. And um, what would I say? Yes. Wow. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> and say this. That's what Barack Obama said. Yes, I can. And there are 43 other white people. It wasn't just one white person. Oh it was God. two and three and five and ten and forty. Forty-three to be exact. Forty-three and a half. So the thing is, is that what you have to say, what you have to say is that just because one person did it doesn't mean another person can't. Jackie Robinson was the first black ball player, but Willie Mays was the greatest. Well, but, so what but Larry Doby was second. Larry Doby was second. There will be another. There will be another one. So we're looking for Willie Mays of black presidents or Wilhelmina Mays, and you could be her. Whoa. You could Tori, be her. Dr. Thank Dyson, thank you so thank much you. for your time. Thank you thank very you. much.